0: This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Kelly Stanley, the author of City of Dragons.
0: Hello and Thanks welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Uh, it's a pleasure. You know, Paul Bishop... Uh, is a great guy and um, when he decided to give away a copy of my book um, because he enjoyed it so much I wanted to sort of uh, further his good karma and uh, participate on this with you guys because you won it and I I appreciate the fact that you're doing a podcast
2: it's 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 really, really cool actually I was in um, a bookstore just uh, yesterday and I was I was wandering the house and I said hey that's a book I got for, for Paul Bishop, and then I walked down another aisle and say, "Hey, I got that one too." <laughs> it was like, um, uh, which aisle can I go down? And I didn't win something from Paul. That's great. So, um, that's cool. You've got some kind of good luck. I, you know, uh, uh, part of it part of it is um, I'm really good at. I've got good web foo. So one of the things he did with uh, another book was he he said. Um, uh, if you can name this picture, wh- where this picture was taken, uh, then you can uh, win this book. But you have to name the place. And, and I, I looked at it. It looked sort of familiar, but uh, it, it was somewhere he had gone on vacation. Um, but what I did, uh, I, I remember this website called TinEye, where you can do a reverse image search. So what you do is you, you put the image that you want to, to, uh, to find into you upload it or you link to it and, and then it does a search of the entire web looking for pictures that are very similar or almost identical.
1: Wow, that is awesome. Yeah. That's a really good thing to know about. I had never heard of that.
2: Before. It's very cool. So what you can do is you can put in, you know, you know, you can put in a book cover and then you can see all the websites that show different versions of it. So if you've got like a small version and you want a big version, you can you can do that or and it's it seems to be really accurate. Wow. So, what's the web address to get it's, that thing? That's TinEye. I, it's I, I'm not sure what the address is, but it's T-I-N-E-Y-E. Oh wow! Okay. TinEye.com, cool. actually, there it is. Reverse image search, and I think you're limited to one search a day if you don't have a membership or something. But
1: yeah, but it's also a really cool way to enter content.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it it actually it was um I think it was Yosemite. Uh, he he had taken vacation to Yosemite and um. Uh, Don't you love it when technology helps? It sure does. Mm -hmm. It sure does. Speaking of which, um, how much of the web did you use to do your research for your book?
1: Well, these days, um, you know, I mean, you you can't, you you can't really not use the web. I use the web constantly in terms of pictorial research, um, because number one, I'm very fortunate. The San Francisco Public Library has a history room that has a, a number of visual references um that are um, digitized and that you can access anyone can access you know Mm -hmm. Um, and so things like that um scanning ebay for items again there's a great uh tool that i actually recently discovered um that works as a as a web clipper and as a research note saver called Evernote. I
0: don't know if you guys mm-hmm. know about it. I have yeah, I've that. got the. Yeah. I've got the app. I think. Yeah, is it's that, a. Is that, um, That's thing. a Mac application, isn't it?
1: No, it's not actually. Oh, I you thought can it was. It for, no, it's you can get it for Windows. That's and nice. uh, uh-huh. Now, if if I had a Mac, I would use a program called Scrivener, ah. which is a it's a it's a writing it's a writing program. It's supposed to be the best thing for writers. I have a lot of friends also mm-hmm. published. Writers who who use it, and it sort of combines various programs, including the capabilities of EndNote with a word processor. But I don't have a Mac, and I just bought a new PC. So um, no, I rely on Evernote, and it's really good. I, I recommend that. I recommend this other program called Zotero, which is a Firefox add-on, um, in which you you can save bibliographic references. Um, but a lot of my, refer- my a lot of my research is done. The old fashioned way, which is through reading, through going through bibliographies in books. Uh, I buy a lot of, um, for example, for forensics. Um, one of the things that you have to be careful of is not to go beyond your period if you're writing a
2: history. Sure. So, uh, no, do American, it, no DNA in there. Exactly,
1: exactly. So, American Booksellers Exchange, for example, which is was a good ABE place. ABE Books, yeah. Right, right great which is a Good place to get used books you can do searches for things like 1939, 1940, crime investigation, you know, and forensics, uh, just keywords, and you can get actual contemporary, for the period you're writing, uh, books about criminal investigation. So then then you can steep yourself in understanding what a detective or police officer at that time would have done and would have known. Um, The other thing I do and uh, this is my guilty pleasure in terms of research, is I surround myself with a lot of memorabilia. Uh, I'm a collector. Uh, I think I, last time I spoke with Jesse, I mentioned that uh, I'm a big comic book collector, and I used to own a comic book store um, in another life. And it's not surprising that you know, it, for those who know me, that I have a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. Uh, it, it, Basically paper ephemera, uh, everything from maps to uh, souvenirs to brochures to um, uh, menus, all kinds of things from this era, from San Francisco, from the World's Fair, all of which influence the writing and inspire it. Because there is information contained in all this flotsam and jetsam from the past that you simply cannot access any other way uh if you go to a book you, you know historians put in what they consider the large arcs of history obviously mm-hmm. uh but the minutiae the everyday life the things that that normal average people encountered and would have worn would have eaten would have would have um, smelled like whatever you know those things are the things that are lost and that's what I try to recover Um, so the ephemera uh, as I said inspires it and also and also provides um, actual information for the book for example for the sequel which I'm writing I'm finishing now one of the murders is uh, involves an ice pick It's an ice pick murder, and it's an ice pick that was a souvenir ice pick from Treasure Island. Now, people think that the World's Fair in 1939 and 1940, the World's Fairs were, uh, you know, they may have a more quaint vision of them in their minds, because some people think materialism was something that Ronald Reagan invented, and that's not true. Uh, (laughs) We've we've always been an enormously uh, materialistic culture, uh, and and in in 1940 was no exception. So, on Treasure Island, there were literally uh, thousands of things from salt and pepper shakers to hankies to rings to powder compacts uh, to card tables <clears throat> to ice picks that were branded with this logo, the World's Fair, that you could buy as a souvenir. Um, and, you know, I thought it would be interesting to have a murder committed with a souvenir ice pick. So uh, and I have one.
2: <laughs> so, well, in fact, sitting, oh, you just lock it up ride. so lock it up so it won't be used. And it's a very <laughs> well, tragic, see. tragic it's, uh, newspaper story.
1: Yes, exactly. It's but it's it's actually it's it's got a little cork on it and it's sitting here next to me. So I'm I'm oh the only person who would be likely to use would be me. So I'm it's 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 like my my defensive weapon if somebody sneaks up behind me while
0: writing. It depends on how deep your research goes, huh? Oh. <laughs> typewriter um
2: okay well uh, i wait before you say anything i gotta ask you uh did, did you smoke a chesterfield because uh i assume that they have this wonderful flavor given how much miranda loves them
1: well no i don't smoke uh, my father is as a lifelong smoker um which is not something that i'm i'm happy about um Smoking. I think. Uh, I think I try to do a reasonably good job of uh, showing some of the effects of smoking. Uh, but Miranda's essentially an addictive personality, which yeah. is um, one of the things—a self-destructive addictive personality, which is one of the things that comes through. Um, I think in City of Dragons, um, when you're when you're an addictive personality, and I know addictive behavior, and I understand it. Um, you know, that's that is your crutch. It's not just your physical addiction, which of course cigarettes have, but it's uh, it's that psychological psychological yeah psychological need. Chesterfields were um, probably the most popular brand with women. There was a huge campaign in the late '30s and early '40s um, with a lot of female uh, film stars at the time, like Rosalind Russell, or a little bit later in the '40s, Carol Landis. Advertising Chesterfield, and they were known. One of their mottos was that they satisfy. That was um, that was a uh, something you'd see on uh, that you do see on uh, advertisements from thirty nine and forty. Uh, and I've always and felt that Chesterfield as a brand had a certain amount of. If you look at if you follow their advertisement, uh, they have a certain amount of class. So mm-hmm. decisions on on like what Miranda smokes. Um, more drinks is largely um, due to... It's largely comes from just her um, as a character uh, and also from from a collective amount of research on my on my part on understanding the messages, the, the, the advertisement behind these kinds of products and who would be likely to to want to smoke what if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, a man... Man's going to be more likely to smoke a camel, uh, but the Chesterfields have a more feminine, feminine yet serious cigarette ambiance. I guess you could say.
0: Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Now, um, uh, I, was, well, the other, I don't know just, if that. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to ask. Um, oh, on the, um, you know, throughout all, all this detail and everything, do you consider *City of Dragons* as much a historical novel as you do a? Would you call it a noir novel? Or a uh, hard-boiled detective novel? That's something we debated previously. <laughs> the, uh, earlier. Well,
1: that, that, you know, I've been debating that. Um, I, I get in, whenever I go to a conference, from my very first conference, I remember being on one of those, is it noir, is it hard-boiled, what, you know, panel. And I know it's it's always tempting. It's always a fun debate, number one, mm-hmm. because it's sort of like the, you know, who was better, John or Ringo (laughs) or John or Paul or, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's fun and it's entertaining because you really don't have an answer. Um, I I did, I wrote an essay because my background, my background is as a scholar, as a classical scholar, I have a master's degree in, in classics. I taught Greek and Latin and I've presented, um, and presented, you know, scholarship. Um, in that arena uh, actually all over the world so I'm fairly used to debate and used to um, arguing which is another way of saying debate Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, so what I decided to do early on when I wrote my first book um, when this question came up because uh, my first book is sold as a Roman noir it's set in Roman Britain in 83 AD or 83 CE Mm -hmm. which is the um, act more of a scholarly way of um, using the
2: time. or or Common era, yep.
1: Uh, Anyway, that was built as a Roman noir because it was more of an affectionate homage to Raymond Chandler. The name of the book is Nox Dormienda, and it's basically Latin for the big sleep. Um you can look at the the technical translation is a long night for sleeping but it's essentially the same thing it's the same metaphor and it's actually if you follow a chain throughout the ages it's actually where Chandler got that metaphor because Chandler himself was a classical scholar who who attended Dulwich College in in London and was very proud of his own Greek and Latin so when that came up um, I wrote an essay in a magazine called Mystery Reader's Journal about how I saw noir and hard-boiled and how it all related and uh, that sort of was enabled me to get a firmer grap- a grap- grasp on how I see it. Some people visualize hard boiled as being a subgenre of noir. Mm. Some people see noir as being a subgenre of hard boiled. I consider noir the umbrella term, and most importantly, uh, for my purposes, because I'm writing commercial fiction, the general public doesn't see the difference. No at all. So noir is something that people assume hard-boiled is. Um, I think in terms of of my own writing style, there are most definitely noir elements. I don't think, I, I would consider it a noir. I think it's an extremely hard-boiled book, but I would also consider it a noir. Uh, mainly, the dividing line between a lot of people on panels I've been on is some people, and if if I can um, be free to use a, a mm-hmm. quote yes. here, um, which will be a little bit loose on the language. But the direct quote is in most. If you go to like Boucher Con you go to a mystery con- a conference where you have these panels, someone will always say, and, and it's true. The standard definition of noir, according to a lot of people, is the protagonist is fucked on page one. Right. Okay. Um, and that is that. That's true for some types of noir but I don't think it's necessarily what constitutes noir uh, it certainly is what constitutes things um, you know typical James M. Kane books mm-hmm. uh, like say let's say the postman always rings twice uh, that's, a, that's a proto or, or double enmity um, mm-hmm. very strong examples of noir but if you use that as the sole and, 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 and defining moment of noir where do you stop because you could say the same thing about Oedipus I mean, there's a guy who...
2: It feels noir. (laughs) his
1: mother, kills his father, has incestuous kids, gets thrown out of a plague-ridden city that he's king of. I mean, I don't think you get more noir than Oedipus, but you usually don't refer to him as being
2: noir. I think it's Uh, noir. (laughs) I think it's noir for exactly those reasons.
1: (laughs) Well, what I'm saying is, it is... Noir, by that definition, but I think what what the public thinks of noir, and what what that the sort of that flavor of noir, that urbanity, the desperation, uh, the sexuality, the the um, outsider versus insider corruption, all all those elements um, come to play in what we kind of see as noir. And noir is also a style, mm-hmm. uh, which is. Another thing, I mean, it's like you can watch, um, you can watch a Western. Um, there's a very good Western, I think it was from 48, uh, and it was directed by Robert Wise. It's called Blood on the Moon with Robert Mitchum. And this is a Western, but it's filmed very much like a noir. So is it a noir or is it a western? Or is it something of both? A so noir or western. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, and is it noir because of the content or is it noir because of the style? So that's what I'm saying. It's it, from my point of view, City of Dragons is is extremely hard boiled. It has elements of noir, strong elements of noir, it's got elements of a thriller. I, I don't really like to write straight genre books or what people would expect. Have straight genre. I like to try to do the unexpected, and um, so it's been called various things. Um, it was just reviewed in Deadly Pleasures magazine in um, a section called "Reviewed to Death," where they have a lot of people sort of like what you guys do: um, read the book.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, someone said, you know, that it's it's like a thriller, and it's like a mystery, and it's like a noir, and um, he he enjoy the book and said it succeeded on all counts. But it's a, it's a difficult problem in terms of if you want to limit your genre reading to one thing or another, I know one thing that it's not, it's not a cozy.
2: No, I'm, <laughs> and I'm very glad about that because that would be the worst cozy ever <laughs> like given, given how not cozy it is. Right. Uh, I guess, I guess uh, there's not, um, I don't think there's any murders that take place on screen. Uh, uh, but they—they're pretty close, right? Yeah. And yeah. they are definitely gruesome, and they're definitely not uh, cutesy.
1: Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that bothers me as a reader is if if violence is diminished and treated nonchalantly, that bothers me. Not just as a reader, it bothers me as a human being. Yeah, me too. And um,
2: one. Th- That's why the A that- Team is such a, a terrible, terrible scourge. <laughs> it is a terrible scourge because it makes violence into not not a cartoon because the cartoons are are completely unreal. It's, it's right, right. It's the it's basically anti noir, anti the showing the horrible reality. Right?
1: Yeah, I, I, I that's absolutely true. I totally agree with you, Jesse. It's and that's the thing that I've actually I've actually thrown books across the room because of that um, as as a reader. I. If, if, if violence is not treated in a respectful way, respectful for the, to the victims, res, you know, with, with all due emotion, and emotion sometimes scares readers, and there's a lot of emotion in City of Dragons, but without all due emotion around the situation, around the tragedy of any death of any of any violence uh, of any rape of any crime uh, that's so violating then i get you know then i don't i quit reading so i there's a there's a a fear that some critics have expressed um that the publication world the publishing industry is going toward a sort of quote unquote torture porn mentality um and if if that happens then you know um I'll I'll be very very upset. Uh that's this is exactly the kind of thing that that I avoid. Um I it's not to say that it's like for example all serial killer books are this way. Uh it would be easier to do to minimize it if you're writing from the point of view of a serial killer or you're doing something that's about serial killers because they are so horrific. Um I prefer to write about the more unfortunately common criminals. And the more kinds of unfortunately common crimes that I think are equally um, painful and horrible and evil, and um, I try to do my best to um, make the reader feel the pain and the um, just the the really unfortunate. Situation of being the tragic situation of being a victim, and
2: uh, I think I think you developed a lot of that uh, sympathy in City of Dragons. Um, one, one of the things you, you said that made me just think of this question if if there was a movie adaptation, would you mm-hmm. get Paul if Paul Verhoeven was attached? What would you think? Would that be because you, you were saying you're you're you know afraid of this this new idea of torture porn i uh, i've always seen his movies as sort of they they sort of disgust you but they they do it deliberately i think uh-huh. what what would you think of that cuz that's just sort of a
1: <clears throat> it would take a meeting <laughs> <laughs> you know i would have to, i would uh, ideally i would i would want to be convinced that that same ethos that we were just discussing mm-hmm. um, was going to be respected because I don't like sensationalism for the sake of sensationalism. In other words, I don't like exploitation. I mean, now, like I, I, I enjoy um, Reefer Madness. I like you know that's um, a, a exploitation film from the thirties. Mm. There, are, you know, it's amusing to watch teenage exploitation films from the fifties. Uh, I'm familiar with the films, but they're like- safe
2: now, right? At they're the time safe. they're a- evil. Exactly. At the time, they're well,
1: that's the um, evil but it, that's they're not even that even then they weren't that bad because they were not as insidious as the kinds of exploitation I'm talking about um, to me it's it's the real seductive dangerous exploitation is when and when you're dealing with somebody who is a good director or who is a good writer and they are seducing you into diminishing violence and so that you have this in ever increasing tolerance uh, of of crime of rape of of um, racism of of things that are bad in this world to put it in a, in simple terms and you know as that tolerance level goes up and people's appetite becomes it's like what do we need we need more to shock we need more to shock we need more to shock and I'm like no you know one rape is shocking enough, one death, one murder, one one diminishment of, of a person is is, is shocking enough and, and, and you need to reevaluate how much it takes to shock. So I've got strong feelings about that um, you know as I said it, it would take somebody who has uh, a sympathetic uh, understanding uh, of that ethos to me because that's that's an it's integrity it's it's what i consider integrity and it's mm-hmm. it, it underpins the work that i do
2: I, I i didn't we didn't talk about it in our previous podcast but now that i think about in the way you're, you're talking about it, it is it is almost like um i was i was thinking you know it's a, it's about the city but it, it might be more about a, the ethical exercises of being you know in that situation um, one review i read said that it 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 felt like Miranda was just dropped into, you know, this modern sensible sensibility person was dropped into, uh, you know, into a time machine and suddenly appears in the past. And I was saying that doesn't sound right to me because I think there was there were people who were not uh, racist assholes and there were people who.
1: Well, exactly. That's somebody who I think um, perhaps wants to feel like there weren't. Anyone, uh, there wasn't anyone in, in, in the past who had these thoughts and somehow that makes them more justifiable.
2: Yeah, the apologist I... for Robert E. Howard saying, you know, he's a, he, he's a racist, yeah, he's a racist, but this is before, you know, the Nazis took hold and this is, you know, he didn't know back, you know, it's a, apologizing for what is essentially, you know, a big moral failing, even, right. even though there were people who were saying, no, this is wrong.
1: Oh, absolutely! There have always been people who have said this was wrong. I mean, there was a an in. Uh, I think it was when did he live? Eighth century, seventh century. Um, emperor of India that his name was Ashoka who who was uh, a vegetarian because he didn't want to kill anything. And apparently, you know, it, it was sort of like a, a a Buddha scenario. But he was an mm-hmm. actual in. He was an actual emperor. I mean. Um, plutarch uh second century a d writes about how the Romans should treat their servants better and that you need to take care of your your old servants just because they can't serve you anymore you need just like you would take care of your old animals you don't just kill them you you take care of them, you honor their age you you put them out to pasture and make sure that they have enough food and enough
2: yeah Medicare. But pasture is <laughs> not a metaphor for, or, right. or not it's not covert language it's literal no. you know you know right
1: you actually feed them, you make sure that they have medical care you you take care of you take care of those that have taken care of you um, and this is this is this is not modern. this is second century a d second century c e so I think people who feel that way are um, either disingenuous or cynical or sometimes they want to feel that uh, that all this stuff is modern because they don't really like it themselves. Uh, One thing I I think about my book in particular, and I I would say that I am proud about this, is that I do think it pushes people's buttons. Um, I think it challenges people's conceptions of history. It challenges their ownership of history. Um, Especially this period, sometimes people want to believe it to be as they see it in the films, forgetting or not knowing that the films themselves were subject to the Hayes office, which was subject to a Catholic... um, decency league that was extremely powerful that dictated people who did anything criminal had to have bad ends that men and women always slept in single beds yeah. separate uh, you know no language beyond damn was used and that was an uphill battle for David O. Selznick with Gone with the Wind in 1939 and you know, I could go on and on and on uh, if you watch a movie from the pre-code era which is basically up through 1934 Uh, a good one to start with that I would highly recommend is Babyface with Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, You can see uh, where movies were headed and they were much more realistic and they were much more frank and uh, you know unfortunately this sort of 40-year pall that descended on the movie industry uh, brainwashed a lot of people into thinking that the past itself
2: was um, Sanitized, yeah.
1: Yes, and a fantasy, yeah. and it's that's that's not the case at all. So I think yeah. I think that sort of triggers some people to want to not believe that you know oh well they couldn't have said fuck then it's like mm-hmm. no fuck, the fuck's been around for a very long time
2: yeah actually Julie uh well she was reading through she was saying um she she didn't know if it was it was a uh, you know, a term of use then, and I think I, I saw on one of the documentaries about the Pacific. You know, that new series that just aired on HBO. Um, it's liberally used there. I mean, it's not their most, you know, their most their word. Is "get down." And the other one is "fuck." You know, somebody's just dead, and yeah, it, it is been... not a it is not a new word, and it's not. Uh, you know, I, I think I think they were saying that it was maybe not historically accurate in Deadwood. Maybe that it may not have been historically accurate there, but
1: I would I would argue that it probably was. Fuck, as far as I know, has been around as a word meaning exactly what it means today since uh, at least the 1600s in England. Yeah. Seriously, you can find it. In, oh no, uh,
2: yeah, it's a great Wikipedia entry actually. Oh it's yeah, that, I actually I, I haven't
1: read that, but um, there's a. It's in a diary of a 17th century um, guy who um, was actually. Uh, on his way to a brothel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of really good diary kinds of books you can read about 17th century uh, Brit- Britain.
2: Well, those libertines, you know.
1: Well, you know, it's the, it's the Restoration period. His name was uh, John Arbosna. And he goes into a brothel, and apparently, uh, so this is a really interesting thing. It's something I was reading for fun rather than research, obviously, but uh, apparently there was this huge, because it was the Enlightenment. Uh, coming to the enlightenment it was the rest was, you know at the end of the restoration period charles II. you have all this scientific energy and exploration in the air and apparently sex toys were, were really a big thing and uh they, and i know it's it's in, like mechanized sex toys and, and because everything oh yeah was yeah. sort of like uh, the, our, our the
2: auto, automata or whatever
0: <laughs> right that's
2: it was like that's what the, the big industry is for, is like, why do you want a robot? Well, you know, the only reason anyone would want a robot is sex.
1: Exactly. So it's like today, it's everybody had to have their iPod and they're a robota. And so it's like this guy in his diary walks into a, uh, into a brothel and says, because he doesn't want to deal with the contraptions that they have. And he basically says, I just want a good old-fashioned fuck. I know, and that's in the diary, so, I, you know, as I said, it's been around for a long time. I, I know that, uh, and I, I know full well that, that there are some people who object to, to language. Myself, um, my code uh, and the way I was raised is that the only words that are truly vile are the ones that are used to hurt and ridicule others. Yeah, that sounds right. Generally, by the by virtue of their race, their gender their sexual persuasion or uh, anything else of that nature. So to me um, it's, you know when I wrote City of Dragons one of my goals was to write history and write a noir with the gloves off in other words um, write about a femme fatale who, uh, a woman who has a lot of the attributes of a femme fatale but put her in the role of the shamist rather than as the villainess and write about it um, without the censorship that pervaded not just the movie industry but also the book industry at the
2: time, I think I think that's that that you have achieved that. Um, one of the one of the questions that uh, came up in our discussion was, uh, what about the editing? Who who edited this book? Is, is this um, uh, edited by Minotaur, or did you uh, workshop it? How did how did uh, uh, how did it come about?
1: Well, it came about like all books come about, uh, which is I wrote it, um, sent it to my agent, um, my agent in the middle of the Great Recession, uh, last January 2009. Oh, that's Um, fast. Yeah, it was a very fast-track book. Um, We had multiple interests from different houses, and um, we accepted an offer with Thomas Dunn Minotaur, um, because the editor there, my editor, really understood what I was trying to go for and um, really, really, really like the book and she has a passion for it and a passion for the series. And I sold it in a two-book deal and uh, hopefully, given the reception that it's had thus far, um, we will continue to go forward. Um, my goal is to write Miranda into the McCarthy era. Oh, um, but uh, you know, uh, the editing process depends on your editor. Uh, my editing process is like everyone else's. You you submit it to your editor. Your editor may have some suggestions. Uh, mine didn't have too many. Um, we talked about it. I made some basic cuts, which is uh, one of the really the only things I the thing that I did was was cut some some passages to to give it a. Slightly quicker flow, particularly toward the beginning of the book, and uh, then you go through copy editing, which is an arduous process where you have to uh, double check all your references. Things always squeak out one way or the other. Mistakes get made, and because you 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 yourself have been through it uh, a zillion times, and normally yeah. when you have these when when you get a copy edited manuscript, your deadlines are like. Uh, Here's the manuscript. Here's what the copy editor changed. If you have to make any changes to this, give it back to us in a week. Right. Uh, And if you've got a day job, which I do, um, and you're not, you don't have the luxury of having a personal assistant, which I don't, um, then you know (laughs) those those deadlines are pretty tight. So. As I said, it's, uh, it's, it's an understandable process if any errors slip through. It's just part of the nature of the beast and the deadlines that you're working with. But we try our best not to. So, you know, you go through, you double-check everything. Um, in my case, you have to go through, because sometimes copy editors are going to understand the style and sometimes they're not. Um, and if they, if they make assumptions that don't fit with what you're trying to do, you have to re-correct what they've done. Um, so... You know, then from there it goes to uh, advanced reading copies, and then from there it gets published. So, it's,
2: <laughs> it's, a, it's that's a, the process. It's a, a uh, sounds like a, a nightmare process to me. But no, uh, well,
1: it's just the way the. But how did the question come up? I'm curious. Well, people
2: don't usually ask. There's about a it. line. There's a line. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Julie, I think what was a page three fifteen or something, and Julie said, "Well, that's a that's a that line just doesn't." Just doesn't jibe with the rest of the book, and it was um, uh, sort of told. It was it was uh, point of view. Yeah, it was a point of view, and one of the characters was thinking about Miranda and mm-hmm. and
1: I know I remember that line. Um, well,
2: he, he was here's... smoking and thinking about Miranda, uh, well, and and I, I didn't notice it my first time through. And when she pointed it out, I said, "You know what? Yeah, that doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. I mean, the the it is third person." right, right third right. person but is it is it a tight third person is it a you know uh, it's it's it, it's kind of omniscient i mean the first page we've got a a um what what is i think her point of view but it struck julie as a bit strange um was the third i think the third paragraph and it says um help the chinese fight japan put a dollar in the rice bowl feed starving war torn china buy me mm-hmm. a drink sister. who who is saying this right well, I think this is the atmosphere, right? I think this is the atmosphere. And, and yet, because it's not set off in you know, some sort of italics or right, – because, because the, the previous two paragraphs are more traditional uh, for the rest of the book, it, it was like, hmm, what's, what's the thinking there? Who's, who's And so she, she – I, I noticed it right away as well, but it felt very much uh, like a sort of eclipse style. And then later on in the book, we get a lot of um, similar passages that are, you know, not jarring because mm-hmm. we get them. Uh, we, we're getting used to the style.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my style is my style, uh, and you know, it is what it is. And sometimes people are going to get it or they're not. Um, you know, I my background is 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 in literature as opposed to genre, mm-hmm. and so it is challenging if you spend if if you're not familiar with. If, if you're used to more traditional, straightforward genre writing, um, that is terrific and fine, um, but generally not experimental. Um, so,
2: is there? And, and there's I would not a... even
1: say that with genre writing and per se, just in writing in general. Some, uh, I'm, I tend to be. I tend to be rather experimental. The way I consider point of view is like a camera. And I write in terms of yes. scenes.
2: We we, we yeah. got a bit that it was it was very cinematic in parts, and ah, uh, and in the description, it's it's uh, it was almost I, I didn't bring it up, but I should have. It kind of reminded me of William Gibson. Um, if you've read um, uh, William Gibson's books, he he's he is almost it's almost like he loves the detail of the product, right? Huh. Um. So when you, uh, well, there's a sequence or a couple of sequences, I guess where we're talking about what's on the radio or it's talking about what's on the radio and, and the shows are named. It's not just, it was an audio drama, it, was, it wasn't just a radio drama it was a, a real show name. And in the same way, um, you know William Gibson doesn't tell you uh, that it's a gun, it's a particular gun you know, with a plastic handle or whatever, you know it's it's always, it's it's like almost a caressing of the object and
1: well i i would say it's from in my case it's a matter of bringing out those that minutiae that i discussed earlier Mm -hmm. and making sure that you're anchored in a time period um to me if you're why why waste a word that's bland like gun if you can be more specific and describe it Mm mm-hmm So, I mean, that's, you know, that's just, that's the way I think and that's the way I read and that's the way I write. Um, As far as the point of view thing, uh, as I said, the camera, I I consider the point of view as a camera and it will move around and once in a while it may pop and go to somebody else's POV, which is the case in in that particular instance. I think it's interesting that you did not notice it the first time around because ideally by that point in the book, you shouldn't. Um, I'm not, you know. I tend to buck wisdom, um, collective wisdom, which is not necessarily a good thing, but um, if I feel like a passage needs to be said, uh, and I really want to bring up some sympathy for a character, I will will do that, because to me, it's like, because somebody told me, well, you have a you have a close POV here, and then you have a more omniscient POV here, and you have to be consistent. It's like, no, I don't think you. No, have you to
2: don't be consistent. have to be consistent as long as it as it works. Um, right. and
1: I think for most people it did.
2: So um, it's, it seems to be pretty popular. I saw it as uh, uh, on Tantor; it was listed in their bestsellers uh, of the latest catalog. So it,
1: the books done the books done very well um, on all. France as far as I know it was a number two bestseller uh, in hardcover at independent mystery sellers across the country um it's you know it's we're we're getting a paperback uh coming out Valentine's Day next year and uh from what I understand from my publisher everybody's pretty happy um so uh, you know I I try not to think about it too much frankly because I've Trying to write the next book, and Mm -hmm. one of the things you have to do is is not spend a lot of time worrying about whether or not somebody
2: um, somebody on the internet disagrees with you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Believe me, you know it's like I I I knew it was a it's a political book, and I knew that it would ruffle feathers. Uh, If it doesn't ruffle feathers, then I'm not doing my job. Frankly, Um, I would rather ruffle feathers than have a bland product that does not exa- excite or uh extract emotion from people but if, if if i would rather have it be loved or hated than have it be accepted mediocrely yeah if you know
0: yeah i agree yeah, yeah. i was just wondering in all your research did you ever come across a female uh, private eye Oh, that that's era?
2: yeah. That's another question. That's a, I, I, that would
0: be a fascinating I, story if you did. It's just interesting.
1: Yeah, I actually there were female PIs in New York in the uh, in the teens. Um, I haven't come across any for San Francisco, but um, I I can tell you there were a lot of of uh, detective agencies in the city. And I have I've read sort of minimally, sort of a, as a sideways note uh, in in various. Um, books and, and articles that I've come across about female operatives uh, at the time. Uh, but nothing really uh, major has been written about them that I know of um, in terms of non-fiction, which it would be a very interesting research topic mm-hmm. for some to do. Um, so I, you know, I took what I knew uh, and uh, what I know about the, the, uh, the actual um, profession and um, statistically looked at the kinds of cases that they would have had. And as I said, there were a lot more of them then than there are now.
2: Are they the, it was it because,
1: because of the divorce
2: rate. Yeah, the divorce, uh, divorce laws in California were such that, you know, it just made a lot of private investigation business, right?
1: Exactly. That was it. I mean, it's the same, same reason why, I, when I try to explain why, say, Sally Rand's nude ranch, which is where Miranda works as a security person when the when the World's Fair is being held uh, and she refers to that in city of dragons and um, it plays a role in the sequel uh, it is also where this uh, the, a prequel to the book which is a, is a, a short story form um, um, is set uh, near Sally's uh, on Treasure Island that's in a an anthology it's actually coming out in just oh. three weeks called first thrills it's a it's an international thriller writers anthology um, it's called first thrills high octane stories from the world's or from the hottest thriller
2: writers something like that i'd like to and, see that actually um well I'll, it's I'll, a I'll really great
1: combination I'll, I'll tell you because it's um it's it's edited by Lee child and uh... it's got like 12 stories by you know new york times bestsellers like uh, jeffrey deaver and Heather Graham and Michael Palmer, and uh, Karen Slaughter and Lee, and uh, tons of people. Um, and then it's got stories from up-and-coming writers like myself, who are who are fairly new, uh, very new in some ways to the business. Um, and so the story of mine that's in there is uh, is called Children's Day, and that's actually set on Treasure Island, and it's a uh, it takes place a year before City of Dragons. So what I was saying is Sally Rand. Um had the only money making uh enterprise on Treasure Island in thirty nine and forty which was her nude ranch and you know I tell the story when i'm when I'm on tour um and people laugh because it's like oh, you know the fact that that men and women, mostly men, but you know sometimes men and women couples, would filter through pay a quarter. And slide behind this glass wall to see these young women running around in bandanas around draped, you know, around their necks and G-strings playing volleyball and riding burrows and and doing these nude ranch things. It just, they just can't understand why. And it's like, well... I'll tell you why. They didn't have R-rated movies. They didn't have X-rated movies. They had pornography, but it—you had to know where to get the pornography. It wasn't out there in the open. You had to go to a—it was illegal. It was, i mean, you had to—you had to know somebody who knew somebody and and be able to to get the quote-unquote dirty books. So what what was the replacement uh, form of entertainment for people because? The you know the the prurient mind or at least the curious mind um, we as human beings we have a natural inclination to um, to these kinds of things. Um, the, they wanted to see nudity. You would have to go to a burlesque show. Uh, Sally Rand had a club in San Francisco called the Music Box. Same thing um that's why burlesque was big that's why striptease was big and that's why sally Rand's nude ranch made so much money well it's <laughs> the same thing with with the de- private detectives you had so many agencies in the city and you had uh, i think last count it was like 2025 20, agencies right in san francisco uh, including the pinkertons of course uh because they served a purpose that today is no longer necessary because of the divorce laws so it's it's a different era and begin at different, a different time. People haven't changed, but the era itself, it, 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 you had different outlets for some of the same human impulses. You know, we we had to get, we had to accomplish the means that we were seeking in a slightly different ways than than we do now. Now, mm-hmm. if you wanted, of course, it's so easy. Then, it wasn't. So you had you had this sort of middleman. You had to go through this route. Now, if you want to go grab a playboy easy easy just go to your you know liquor store and you've got a whole selection then you had to go pay a quarter to your mm-hmm. so as i'm saying it's it's things like that that are kind of to me that are very uh, interesting but the idea uh, and in very fascinating to write about in, in terms of history but the idea is that the same impulses were there we just yeah. uh, you know they just got met in different ways
2: I, I, I'm not super familiar with Treasure Island, but I'm just l- looking at it now. It's, it's uh, I, I, that looks like it's going to be a very interesting uh, setting for a story, and, well, and, and it's the World's Fair, 1939,
1: right? Right, right. There was in two. There were two World's Fairs at the same time, um, coast to coast. There was the New York World's Fair with the Trilon and the Paris Fair in 1939 and 1940, and then on Treasure Island, which was a man-made island built in uh, the middle 30s, uh, originally designed to be the airport for San Francisco, um, 400 acres um, after the fair was over and of course it to be way too small for that. Uh, although the Pan Am Clippers used to take off in this little lagoon right next to uh, the administration building down there on, on the island and fly to China in 39 and 40 right from there. Um, so y- you've got you've got two World's Fairs, they've had thirty nine and forty both years, um, while the world while America was desperate to not get involved in the war. And it was, you know, one of the, sort of the last uh hysterical fling of um isolationism and uh not wanting to uh, you know not wanting to literally get involved. Um Roosevelt had a heck of a time trying to get things like the Lendley Sack passed. Uh, And to try to give aid to Britain, uh, who was really the uh, who really took it on the chin uh, as the last democracy between uh, Hitler and us, essentially, after the after France fell, Uh, and throughout all this, you know, we had world fairs, we had fun, we had nude girls, we had this, (laughs) we had that, you know. So it's a very um, I try to bring some of that out. I mean, one of my
2: it's a jam packed time, and it it (laughs) almost feels like. um, It is sort of unexplored territory because I don't don't think a lot of this uh, hard-boiled style, noir-style book has been set prior to the war. Most of it's set, you know, right after or well before. Right. I can't think of a specific example in this exact era. And you really do – it is a a book set in that specific period, not just for the plot, but also for the – or the you know the talk on the street what people are talking about.
1: right and you know the Spanish Civil War which I know you're a you're a
2: I, I, I it's funny to say you're a fan of a war, but I'm a fan of that war. <laughs> I know.
1: It, it's an, it's a fascinating conflict and it was such a precursor to the same to to, to World War 2, what became World War 2 and was first the European war. Uh, that and to me it was just such a watershed, you know, and one of the things, for example, that um, in my in my research that came comes up in the in the next book is that you had Irish um, fascists who were known as the blue shirts who were fighting on the side of Franco and you had members of the IRA who were foreign enemies of the blue shirts fighting on the side of the rebels. I'm not the rebels, excuse me, the Republic. So it was it was the good you know you, yeah you you had this literally you had, you had just just in terms of sort of irish political movements you had a you had a mirror your mirror reaction to the to the spanish civil war and this and it was really that conflict and those two viewpoints sort of represent to the two warring isms um through that, that were warring up through the end of World War II, except of course for the Stalin non aggression pact with Hitler, which sort of really took uh, a great many of the American communists by surprise. Um, because took they, Stalin by surprise, too, eventually, because <laughs> they were supposed to toe the party line, but some of them were like, Well, no, you know. Uh, so, it's it's a fascinating conflict, and I think it was a very uh, moral conflict and um, I you know it, it became an, uh, a very very, very important part of Miranda's character that she went through that and and, and as further books go through uh, go on, you you see more more backstory. Uh, about elements of that but it's just like you know she is essentially a soldier coming back from a war yeah
2: i I was saying that in the previous podcast i was saying that she is like she had pst ptsd you know they don't say it exactly that but she i I mean you you know you're saying she's a very humane person she's not humane to herself right she's she's quite evil to herself you know the, the way she punishes herself but that's uh you know it it felt authentic in that you know she's surrounded by people who who don't know what war is like haven't exactly. heard of war and yet she's coming from a very um very bad a bad position that space you,
1: you can imagine what it would be like i mean i because I, I know from talking to my dad who was in vietnam uh when you come back from a conflict that's not supported at home um in the the sense that that wasn't and and how some of that some of that animosity gets projected onto the people who were involved in this case which is which is to me completely criminal but in this case you know miranda was fighting on a side that a lot of people were against in america you had um, the famous catholic priest um... charles coughlin father coughlin who was a, a, a infamous anti-Semite and uh, basically a fascist who had the ear of many, many, many thousands of people. He fronted an organization called the Christian Front, which was basically a um, prototype of militias that operate today. In fact, there was a bomb plot in January of 1940 that Hoover disrupted uh, in New York City by, uh, by members of Coughlin's Christian Front movement. Oh God. They were essentially, uh, and there were lots and lots and lots of groups like this that existed at the time, and actually this plays a part in, in the next, uh, the sequel to City of Dragons. Um, there were a lot of groups like this, and Coughlin went on the air every week and told people that the only way to deal with Spain was the Franco way and he was I mean he he had a lot of listeners so you 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 had people like this and Miranda's gone through what she's gone through she comes back to a world that seems a society that seems to either be against what she believes or doesn't care wants to go you know ride the roller coaster on Treasure Island or um, go drinking or gambling at one of the zillions of clubs that existed at the time open you know, almost practically all night and basically was interested in a good time and wanted to forget about anything that was really happening in the world. So it's very frustrating for her. It's um,
2: I don't, I don't think it, it's ever mentioned, but her, her politics other than being, uh, not racist and, uh, uh, you know, um, generous. Um, I, I, she's not. It's not clear she's a communist or anything. No, uh, she's not
1: a communist. Her friend Benta Gallagher's a communist, but Miranda's the type of person who is not a party member of any kind. She's just she has her own code, because she herself has, from virtue of her past and what you might euphemistically term a childhood, um, has to be completely self reliant. Has had to learn to be a world unto herself. Uh, except for Johnny and that episode in her life. So um, as you see her in City of Dragons, she is essentially rebuilding who she is and her life and uh, trying to come to terms with that loss uh, the one time when she was able to sort of expand and, and be vulnerable. Um, and... So her politics are. I think she would. She's cynical, and she really doesn't. Yeah, cynicism is <laughs> a good word. <one.
0: laughs>
1: cynicism is her politics. She doesn't really trust any entity that is a that is a bureaucracy, whether it's the church, whether it's a party, or what have you. Whether it's the cops, it's. I, I think her her point of view would be. You know what—that uh, that people can be decent, but that but that organizations are
2: almost always corrupt. That sounds right to me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, did you pick a uh, brigade? Is she in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade or the George Washington Brigade? Did you? Uh... <laughs>
1: I actually have. I haven't solidified that yet. Um, I have to. I have to though, um, because I only flesh out so much of the backstory that I need at the.
2: particular yeah, I, I. I don't remember. It was she like we? We there's a bomb going off. We in a flashback sequence. There's a bomb going off. I think. And she 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 kisses the pavement. I, I thought that was a good line. Um, she kisses the pavement. Uh, or actually, I think that the bomb going. It was it was a flashback, and then she's kissing the pavement in San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's like a flashback for her in some in in, in sort of a oh, hybrid when just, piece. When you're talking about when the car tries to run over her, yeah, over that's right. It. Um yeah. and it's and then she gets a flashback to Johnny. I think in right. And is it Barcelona? Is it because, you know, it, it wasn't clear. It was in Spain. I think it was
1: Madrid. I think it Madrid. was Madrid. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I remember um, I've got notes on it because basically I, I keep notes on like backstory and where people are at a certain given time. And then as and then as I revisit it in further books or stories, then I go back to the notes and flesh them out and do more research. Because it's, you know, I you don't. When you're writing something um, set in a different time period, at least the way I work, you don't ever stop doing the research. The research continues. I mean, it's like I write and research at the same time. I mean, I do a a certain amount of research up through the point where I start writing, enough to sort of have a plot develop. And uh, I don't outline... Um, my plots, I, I, I have a very loose outline and because I know there are certain points and certain events that have to happen that I want to hit on and that I want to make sure that I get to and I have to keep the pace flowing so but to me part of the joy of writing is not knowing what's going to happen and I, I sort of like to give my characters somewhat free rein and sometimes they surprise me and sometimes characters come in that way that I don't even expect. Um, if I had everything completely outlined then uh, it would take away the spontaneity, and it yep. would it would deprive me of the joy of writing. So and
2: the exploration that you're doing, yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. So it's it's necessary for me to keep to keep researching because I never know when some new thing I might research today may work its way into what I'm writing now. You know, so if you if you if you're open to that sort of spontaneity or serendipity, sometimes really cool things can happen, and um, you know. And that, and to me, that's some of the joy. And, and it's it's a lot of subconscious work, you know. When I, when I set, when I opened the book uh, with Eddie's murder on Sacramento Street, I chose that street. And of course, I've been there many, many, many times, and and will be back many, many, many times because I love Chinatown. It's one of my favorite places to go. Yeah, it's awesome. It is, and uh, I don't know why. I didn't know at the time why I had to be at that spot, but it just felt right, and. When I went back subsequently for um, more research and I was standing there approximately where I thought Eddie's body would have been, um, I realized that across the street directly on by the spot where the, the herb, herbal place is, is a little storefront that is covered in political pamphlets and books in the window and it says it's dedicated to the truth, about the Sino-Japanese War. That place exists on Sacramento Street in that spot today, 2010.
0: Wow. Because
1: that conflict is still extraordinarily resonant with the Chinese-American community. And in fact, the day my book was released on February 2nd, uh, there was an article at AP about the Japanese releasing figures about Nanking, that again, we're not in agreement with the Chinese figures. It's an ongoing struggle Deni- and
2: it's, it's denial. It's,
1: it's denial. Denial. Yeah, and it's and it's, you know, you have you have people who have you have people who are, who will tell you that the Holocaust didn't take place. There will be people that tell you that the, that this didn't take place, and um, you know, and, and but but between those two countries, between those two cultures, there is an enmity still. Uh, in many people's hearts, I have a friend who, who is um, a Chinese American, who who has relatives who will not eat in Japanese restaurants. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it, it it is what it is, and uh, and. The fact that that store, or that, it's not a store, but the fact that that organization was on Sacramento Street, I think I had probably seen it and not realized that I'd seen it. And it seeped into my subconscious, and so that's why I set the murder there.
2: Uh, if somebody's riding by on a bus, reading the first couple of pages of City of Dragons, or is it, or is it a, uh, maybe it's a, it's not a, tr- is it a trolley? I don't know what's Sacramento Street. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they're riding by and they look out, the, they'll look up and look out the window. They'll get an extra bit of uh, history there, won't they? And maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit of spoiler for the end. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, 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 um, no. I, I gave you some homework. Did you manage to have a listen to any uh, of that audio drama I suggested?
1: I have not. Oh, I, uh, well, I listened I,
2: I, to yours. I listen to Quiet.
1: <laughs> I'm going to, but I have to save it as a treat because... Nope. Uh, no, honestly, I'm I'm on a deadline for the next book, and I already have one extension from my publisher because I I should have been done by now. Okay. But then I won't uh,
2: do it. That's a good yeah. Example.
1: I I've been having to cut out every other form of entertainment uh, to try to get this next book finished, and it's late for a lot of reasons. Some of which are are personal, and and a lot of which are related to the necessity of um, of marketing these days, which is. Largely and almost 100 percent on the shoulders of authors, especially authors in my position who are new. Um, It's it's it takes an unbelievable amount of time and energy. I've done a lot of traveling, um, and you know I had to do what I could to get the word out about this book because it was in Barnes and Noble's. It was on the new arrivals rack. It had a pretty big release, but the marketing for it fell. Uh, a great deal uh, to me as it does to, to many of my colleagues. and
2: Most. Most yeah, authors have yeah. to do all the work.
1: Yeah, so uh, that took a lot of time and because I have a day job, um, as I've mentioned, uh, you know, you can imagine my, my schedule's pretty grim at the, at the moment. No doubt.
2: no doubt. No, 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 no need. But when you do have a treat, be sure to check out uh, the uh, Blackjack Justice series from
1: I can't wait. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm very theater. much forward to it. I, I I applaud I applaud them for for doing this. I think it's it's marvelous, and uh, obviously I'm a fan of, of, of radio. Uh,
2: yeah, there's a lot of nice references in the book to uh, all the different radio shows. And I, I almost wanted to I almost wanted to stop the book and say wait I got to download that first and then <laughs> oh and then and then I'll get back to the book. But uh, it was kind of compressed, so I'm gonna have to do that after. Is there a master list somewhere you've got of all the Uh, Radio dramas that would have been playing in that exact week. Um, Uh, I'm not sure how obsessive you are there.
1: Um, not on my website, but it's something that figure out.
2: It's January January 1940 and February February 1940, right? So I just look it up. You can look it up. Maybe I'll do that as a post.
1: You can look it up. There's a playlist on my website with the songs. However, okay. Um, So those are those are a little bit more easily found as um, on the extras page on my website you can you can access um, the soundtrack
0: to City of Dragons. So but the is songs that, are... Is that Kellystanley.com? Yeah, yeah stanley.com. Stanley.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you could find that. There's also a map of um, of a lot of the places like the Pickwick Hotel. It's a Google map that um, I constructed and then put on the website so that you can actually see the locations. And like where Laurel Hill Cemetery was, or where the Pickwick Hotel is, um, of the various places. You can see Miranda's, Miranda's apartment somewhere. You can see Miranda's apartment, yeah. I, in fact, I, one of the things I have to do that I haven't gotten around to doing it yet, but I shot a video in Chinatown and I'm supposed to shoot a couple more around the city. One of them is going to be at Miranda's apartment and at the Monadnock building where her office is, and one of them is going to be over by Laurel Hill Cemetery, which is where they found where, you know. Betty winds up. So um, I'm going to film those videos a little bit later in the summer, as soon as this next book's finished. Uh, the Chinatown one has already been filmed. I just have to get it into an an, an editing program. And,
2: and well, those would be good for when the paperback comes out, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I figured that'll be fine for the paperback. It's just you know, time management is the is the hardest thing I think that uh, writers have to face these days, uh, especially if unless you know you've got the luxury of being able to to do this full-time or devote to vote your work all your working hours to it it's 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 a it's a pretty tough um situation but we're all of us no matter what are are very we all consider ourselves very very lucky to you know be in the privileged position of having our work being able to be shared because that's what it's all about it's like if you know if you want to write you can't write in a vacuum I mean I suppose you could but it doesn't give you much satisfaction um at least it wouldn't to me, and it's one reason why I, I want my my books to matter, and uh, why they may be slightly controversial with some people, um, because I I do want to express a point of view that I think uh, that I believe in, and um, you know, I, I'm grateful to have that opportunity.
2: Well, we're grateful to have you on the show.
0: Yes, thank you very well, it's much. It's a pleasure